Our scripture reading for today is from the book of James, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships. Though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and it itself sets on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does the spring pour, pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, brothers and sisters. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Living God, we give thanks to you for this day, and we pray that amidst all the words we hear today, that your word will come through to give us new life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I think after Anne read that passage, I was like, all right, we can go. <laughs> it's great to be able to be here and to spend some time with you today. Uh, obviously, we wish we could have been outside. Uh, that was certainly the plan, and I have like a whole thing here in my intro about being outside, the beautiful weather, etc. So I'm, I'm going to scrap over that and uh, toss that to the side. Because today we, we got a certain a curveball. Now, as, uh, as many of you know, this summer we have been uh, traveling through the book of James, um, which I think it's fair to say, and you've heard this kind of uh, uh, iterated, and I'll say it again in just a minute, it's one of the most polarizing books in all of the Bible. The sermon series uh, has been titled Faith and... And the idea has been to see the many different ways in which our faith is meant to intersect with our lives. In fact, the, the overarching idea is that really there is no area of our life that should be cordoned off from our calling to be followers of Jesus. And what we say, which obviously this passage today deals with that, is certainly no exception. Now, uh, as you've heard in different sermons already, I think I heard Andrew say it, I think you might have said it, Sarah might have said it, but I wasn't there. 
uh, Martin Luther, in particular, did not like the book of James. He didn't think it belonged in the canon. He didn't care for this book, and he thought, uh, the reason, of course, is that he thought it didn't have much to say about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be teaching a class, as it turns out, in the fall on the Reformation, so I'm kind of brushing up a little bit on my Luther. And it's fair to say that some of his criticisms of the book of James are very much shaped by his own fights with late medieval Catholicism. But I have to be honest, as I was sitting with this passage and working on this particular passage this week, and the difficult words that it bears, I could feel the weight of Luther's criticism and his complaints. I wish I didn't have to speak on these verses. And not the least because I'm called your quote unquote teaching minister. This is a hard book to read. And our passage today in particular is a tough one, strong medicine. In some ways, it's a pretty straightforward message. It says our words can be deadly and they can be in fact as deadly and as dangerous as our actions. But it says it with a very, very pessimistic view of people. This is, I would suggest to you, the kind of passage that if you don't sit with it for a while and bring it into dialogue with other parts of scripture, it can really beat you up. Now before I jump into the passage itself, uh, I do want to say that I think in spite of the negative, which is so obvious in this passage, that there's actually something quite positive underneath that James is trying to say to us. And I've come to the conclusion that it, it can be stated as follows, that his real message is this, let your words like your actions, reflect the love and mercies of God. Let me repeat that. Let your words, like your actions, reflect the mercies of God. Now we don't know the exact historical setting of James, but it's fair to say that he was very concerned for the integrity and the wholeness of the communities to which he was writing. If you read the book as a whole, he's constantly urging on these communities, often in a very exaggerated way, and I would suggest that that's an element that's happening in our passage itself. He's urging them to let their common life together to be shaped by the life of God. And who is this God? Not just what is this God's name, the fact that this God is associated with Israel, rather who, what's the character of this God? And James sprinkles that idea throughout the letter. He says that God is filled with compassion and mercy. He says, that God is the source of all wisdom, the one to whom, to whom humankind should turn, and that the wisdom of God 
is also filled with mercy and good fruit. And in a statement that I have to say is one of my favorites, maybe in all of scripture, he tells us that, quote, mercy triumphs over judgment. The God whose life the Christian community, to whom James was writing, but also to us, the God whose life those communities are being urged to be shaped by is a God of compassion, a God of mercy, and a God of love. And so James, as we learned last week, says to these communities, you say that you believe in the God of mercy, and yet you do not show mercy or compassion in your common life. Your actions do not match your confession of faith. Your works is the sort of theological terminology I suppose we run into. Your life does not line up with what you say. His call is a constant refrain that you can hear going all the way back into the Hebrew Bible and all the way up to today. Learn to imitate God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do not show partiality to the wealthy and the powerful. Care for the least of those in your midst. Care for the poor. Now our text closes the circle in some respects on this very broad message that we find in James. And that's because it takes up the call for our actions to match or be matched by our words. It reminds us that our words also need to imitate the mercy of God. And in a culture like ours, a culture awash in social media, a culture built on the fundamental right of freedom of speech, this is indeed strong medicine, but much needed. Now, I think this particular passage today, what we have is James speaking in a highly exaggerated way, at least in terms of the details. Though the underlying message he wants to get across to us is for us to realize that words can be as powerful as actions in the life of any community. That words, just like actions, can be sources of justice or injustice. They can wound or they can heal. They can be good or they can be evil. And that our calling and our task is to speak words ultimately that give life. Words that are shaped by the love and the mercy of God, not by our own anger or pain or hatred. Now, to make this point, James starts his passage, uh, I'd say, in an obvious place. He talks to teachers in the community. 
He talks to me. He talks to you. He talks to anyone who has some level of authority with the words that they say. And that, that makes sense, doesn't it? If you're going to talk about the power of words, why not begin with those whose words are thought to carry some weight? And of course, it is entirely possible that James is actually addressing a real historical problem within the communities to which he's writing. It's been hypothesized that perhaps there were people setting themselves up as teachers who not only were they not qualified, but they had not yet grasped the weight that words can carry and the destructive power that they can have in a community. Perhaps they were not yet up to the task. They had not yet perhaps grasped that God is not a God of destruction, but rather of life. Either way, James only sticks with the teachers for just a little bit. Almost immediately after the initial warning, he, in which he says that not everyone should be a teacher, James widens his aperture to include anyone who can communicate. All of us. He says, for all of us make many mistakes. Every single one of us. I would say that this is probably my second favorite portion of this passage. <laughs> uh, and of course, this includes James himself. His grammar here makes it clear that no one is exempt, not even the apostles. But this means that the, this shift, I should say, means that the challenges that any teacher would face in regard to their words, that this is also faced by anyone else in the community. Anyone who speaks, and we all must speak in one way or another, faces the same daunting challenge, which is what much of this passage really is about. And that is that the tongue is a dangerous weapon. From James's perspective, the old adage, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, that is fundamentally wrong and misleading. And this is quite honestly a fact that I think many of us know only too well. Words spoken by people whom we might know, love, trust, or at the very least are in proximity to, they can traumatize. They can stick with you. And I don't have this in my sermon notes right here, but I can tell you when I was a professor and I would get my student feedback, yeah, you've got lots and lots of positives, but that one negative, even if it was completely groundless, and often it was, <laughs> it still hurt. It stung. Our words, what we have to say to one another, and sometimes what we leave unsaid, these things have great power to harm or to heal. Now to develop this point, our passage offers a series of metaphors for the power of the tongue. James says, it's like a rudder on a ship. Though small, it guides the whole 
vessel. Or it's like the stirrups on a horse, which when you turn it from one way or another is able to guide not only the whole animal, but the whole chariot. The point, of course, of these metaphors is quite simple. If someone can control their tongue, then they can probably control the rest of their lives. And by the way, just so you know, this is not, these images, this notion, this point that James is trying to make is not something that you only find in Christian religious writings. Rather, you can find this across the world, and certainly in James's own context, we find other Greco-Roman writers saying the same thing, other Jewish writers at the same time saying the same thing. But what is unique to James is his profound pessimism about our ability to control the tongue. James is clearly pessimistic whether or not we can, in fact, tame ourselves. He describes the tongue as a restless evil filled with deadly poison, a member of the body that sets fire and that is itself set fire by hell. That's pretty, that's pretty pessimistic. You know, when I was thinking about the power of the tongue to sow destruction, I kept thinking about certain movies that I had seen. Uh, there were a couple that came to mind. One of them you may or may not remember. This is all the way back from uh, back in the old days, 1988. Uh, the movie Dangerous Liaisons. I think it was remade recently. I haven't seen the remake. Um, maybe you could throw in a different one here, like Mean Girls, or you know, there are other ones like that that deal with all these movies deal with gossip and lies, and how those things can wreak havoc, sometimes leading to consequences that even the person who traffics in the falsehood doesn't expect. But of course, I also couldn't help but think about our own cultural moment. One sometimes here hears that we're living in a post-truth world. Lord, help us if that's true. And whatever your perspective on the events that happened on January 6, 2021, at the very least, the power of words to unleash chaos has very much been on trial during the hearings as they've gone on over the summer. All of this, James's pessimism, our own personal experience of the power of words can lead to the feeling, like you can honestly understand why some religious traditions have not only treasured but emphasized the need for silence, that to be silent is in fact a mark of wisdom. In fact, with all the pessimism that shows up in James, it's kind of surprising that you get to the end of the passage and he doesn't tell his readers to keep silent. That's not at all what we get. And this is why, of course, I think that this is an exaggeration, this portion of scripture. It's meant to tell us, to warn us of the power of the tongue, but also to concede that we must speak to one another. Already at the beginning 
of James, the book of James, in the very first chapter, he gives great advice. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. He says later on, after our passage, we ought not to speak evil against one another, but rather we should speak from the wisdom that sows peace. Clearly, James assumes that we will speak, that we must speak, and that our speech will reach into the lives of others. Now, as I was reflecting uh, on the passage and on the message, there were a couple things that happened. The first was the conclusion, at least, of one of the trials being brought against Alex Jones and the conspiracy or lies that he had been telling about the Sandy Hook massacre that took place many years ago in Connecticut. Jones made massive amounts of money off of these claims and he was found guilty of lying and made to pay a significant amount of damages. But what really caught my attention as I watched this was not so much Jones and the feeling of like finally someone was held accountable. It was rather the testimony of the families from Sandy Hook who had had to live with those lies. The trauma upon trauma that was inflicted upon them after losing their children in a way that quite honestly is incomprehensible to me and I think probably to most people in this room, these families could find no space to grieve or mourn because they were attacked not only by Jones's lies, but by others who had been inflamed by them. That was what caught my attention. The ability of words to inflict almost incalculable harm the second thing that happened was that it was a little closer to home. It was, uh, it was something that happened on social media. Someone that I really care about, but whom I have certainly disagreements with, they posted something really disturbing on social media. They, their post celebrated the sentence that had been handed down recently to Brittany Griner, the WNBA star who's been held in Russia for, I don't know, at least eight months, nine months now, for possession, basically, of medical marijuana. Never mind that she is clearly a political pawn in a, in a period of war, which is causing havoc and mayhem. Because she held different political views than this person, she was seen as fair game to be slandered and attacked. And I couldn't help but ask, why? Why would you post something like that? And I actually did write that. And my friend never responded to me, but the other answers I got from other folks on their feed, they were as sad as the post itself. Now, both of these events point to the destructive power of words. 
And just so you don't think I'm just trying to hold a mirror up to other people, I can think of many, many conversations, some even recently which I have had, which I replay in my head again and again, wishing I had said something different. I had done something different. And we could, we could end this message, honestly, here, and just say, don't do that. <laughs> James is telling us not to do that, which is true. But as I alluded to at the beginning, I think there's also a positive message beneath the negative. An inverse Use your words for life. Let your speech be shaped by God's love and mercy. What does that look like? We can probably think of a lot of examples. I, again, I was drawn into thinking about some movies. The one that kept playing in my mind was a movie from the late 90s called Magnolia. It features a number of stars that you might recognize, people like Tom Cruise, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Julianne Moore, and John C. Riley. And it is rated R, so just as a warning, mostly for the language, which is, I think, intentional, because it's a movie about a lot of things, but one of the things most definitely is that it is a, word, is a movie about the power or weakness of words. I would even call it a kind of parable of grace, though you have to travel through an awful lot of muck to get to the grace. But the movie basically brings together several different storylines over the course of about three hours. And at the end of the movie, all of these storylines begin to coalesce together. And there are several scenes where healing happens where it begins to happen when true life-giving words are spoken or where the truth of what someone has said is finally recognized. It's a genuinely beautiful movie. Now, I believe what I'm describing here this movie in some small way captures the inverse of what James has had to say in our, in our, in our passage. That words of care, words of encouragement, words, even when they are long overdue, they can play a role in sowing peace in lives that are anything but peaceful. To bring it a little more close to home, let me make sure I got my hanky nearby. I can think about my own life and the words of truth that I have heard. In 2017, my mom died of cancer. And during the last two months of her life, 
I was able to be there with her in South Carolina with my wife and my dad. And my mom and I spoke several times. And through the, the haze of the opiate medication that they had given to her, we were able to connect on things that mattered. Things that you might call unfinished business. No one else heard those words but me. But to this day, I can still hear them. I go back to them from time to time because they re-empower me, they recenter me, they remind me that there is love in the world. I can remember what my mom said to me about us and about our relationship and about how she felt about life and death. Those, my friends, were words that gave life and they continue to give life to me. And of course, in all of this, this sobby personal story, which if you're shocked by this, then you don't know me. Uh, I keep thinking also, of course, of Jesus. Because in the end, that really is also what James is saying. Try to be more like Jesus also in your words. There is one passage that describes Jesus that's found in Isaiah 42. It says, quote, a bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. When I was ordained, these words were also given to me in my vocation as a teacher. And I've tried and certainly failed often to hold to them, but they have been a guiding light. Jesus, however, he did speak in that way. There are numerous places where we can see him speaking in such a way that even the faintest note of hope comes alive in the person who hears. Even the smallest possibility of love and life become magnified for those who hear his words. And this is to me what it means to, to live by these verses and what it might mean for us to be a people who let our actions and our words reflect the compassion and mercies of God. Now as we reflect on how we're gonna use our words in this world, I pray that we will find ways not to crush others, not to snuff them out or break them, and especially the others with whom we disagree. That we will learn to truly walk in the footsteps of Jesus which means to see the humanity 
in every person, even those who may not return the favor, perhaps especially those who will not return the favor. Our calling is to be a people who sow peace with our actions and our words. Let this be so. And when we fail, gotta tip our hat to James, when we fail or when others fail with their words and their actions, to remember what James tells us, that mercy triumphs over judgment. May it be so. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this day that your words will awaken us to the power of our own speech that we might sow peace and not discord, that we might sow love and not hatred. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.